This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. Theo Greyhawk. Hello and welcome to Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated Star Trek The Next Generation podcast. I'm one of your hosts for today, Lee Hutchison, and I'm joined as always by Amy Nelson. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, at the time of this recording, yesterday was Captain Picard Day, and so I went out to the Millennium Fandom Bar here in Las Vegas and had a great time. They had uh, some amazing things going on, some Klingon beer. I got a... a a bottle of that to commemorate the day and just really had a fun time. So um, I'm doing good. Excellent. And we're not joined by Richard today. So we must have jinxed it last week when we had all three of us together. It had, it had to be fate. Yes. <laughs> but instead, we're joined by Zachary from Metatrex and To The Journey. How are you, Zachary? I'm doing great. I'm actually Skyping in from the bridge of my own starship, ready to lob some verbal photon torpedoes your way. But I have to warn you, Captain Fruling has never lost. <laughs> there we go. See that he's already dropping hints about what's to come. So, um, like Zach, before we kind of dive into the topic for today's uh, discussion, what's your kind of next generation story? Like, was it the first Star Trek series you shot, saw or what, what was your kind of feeling? And have you got any standouts from the next generation you'd like to share with people? You know, it's actually really ironic that I ended up having Voyager as my favorite show and hosting a podcast on Voyager over on To The Journey because I grew up with the next generation, even though I remember watching the original series with my dad a few times when I was a little kid and I have these just one-off memories of watching original series episodes and I always loved it. I really grew up with The Next Generation as a as a, a preteen and into my teenage years so it's really my first love so it's kind of like being here with you guys in Earl Grey is kind of like having a drink with an old girlfriend in 10 forward. Very good and it's and they always did say that uh, Voyage was like a poor man's version of The Next Generation so welcome <laughs> to the real deals. Uh. The, stakes, the stakes are higher. Our reputations <laughs> so, are on the line. So whenever we get like a, a guest and we always like to throw the topic over to them and the topic you've chosen, Zachary, do you want to introduce it and tell us why you've chosen it? I was trying to think of an episode that doesn't get a lot of press and um, a lot of people really don't care for the second season of TNG. You know, they, they like the season three, four and five and there are some great episodes in the first season, but I've actually always really liked the second season. And this episode, Peak Performance, is one of my favorites because I, I think it appeals to parts of my personality. I would be like Riker on that bridge of the ship saying, come on, bring it on. I've never lost. Give me the challenge. So there's something about this episode that, that really appeals to me. And uh, there's some great one-liners in it. Um, just 
yeah, it's, it's one, always been one of my favorite episodes and I uh, don't get a chance to talk about TNG very often. So I figured while I have the chance, let's let's talk about it. Quite right. Amy, do you remember your first time watching Peak Performance? Um, I don't remember, but I, of course, love all seasons. And so uh, this definitely is one of my favorites. And as I was watching it again in preparation, I was just amazed at how much good stuff there is in this episode. So I'm very excited and looking forward to discussing this. Excellent. Yeah, like, um, I'm a big fan of this episode as well. I uh, remember when I first saw it... um, back in the day like you know it was so expensive to own videos and uh, Blockbuster Video did like four like you would get um, like four episodes on a a video if you rented it from Blockbuster so I had this and it was had like the Emissary Shades of Grey um, and oh I can't remember the other one oh um the one where look, look, Santa Troy comes on the ship and she's in kind of menopause or something. Well, whatever that one was. The Manhunt. And, um, the Manhunt, that's the one. Yeah, it had Fleetwood Mac in it. And um, yeah, I remember peak performance like being the standout episode on that uh, four episodes. And yeah, I watched that episode a hell of a lot because, you know, it's costs a lot of money for a young kid to own a video so you know you kind of watch a lot of what you've got there and yeah peak performance was definitely uh, my, one of my favorite episodes so you know Zachary do you want to uh, open us off like you know kind of tell us what is it you kind of love about peak performance and um, what kind of your reactions were the first time you watched it you know I actually think I remember playing Stratagema on my Atari 2600 back in the day <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, I honestly can't remember the first time I watched this. I've watched this so many times. I couldn't tell you about the first time I watched it. But I I remember it being one that sticks out in my memory. And, you know, there aren't a lot of second season episodes that are really just strong in my memory. And this one has always stuck with me, even when I haven't watched it for years. So no, no particular memory, but it's one of my favorite, favorite episodes. Mainly again, because I think it it appeals to my personality. Yeah. And I I think it's, it's definitely got that. It feels very different from a lot of episodes that we've got of Star Trek to this stage that I can imagine that sort of discussion kind of going on if message boards were around back in the day that they're talking about right we're going to have these war games and well Starfleet's not really a war organization I don't think like being able to throw a punch or use a torpedo is actually any kind of qualifier to what a Starfleet officer should be doing or anything along those lines and ah well I suppose it's something we could do I guess like it's this idea that they have to kind of have some skills for defending themselves because it's not like they haven't had run-ins with the Klingon the Borg the Ferengi and numerous alien species over the course of the two seasons that this idea that they maybe need to prepare for weapons that attacks and invasions is uh you know seems so alien to them i think you can definitely see gene roddenberry's influence in these early seasons of tng this idea that that the, that starfleet's not a military organization it has this sort of utopian vision we don't really need to do that we're we're above this but of course you know i think i really identify with commander Riker. you know commander Riker is the guy who's not going to resist the chance to play a game of stratagema with a guy he knows is going to beat him he's going to take command of a starship and play the war games even though he's like oh no no no, no we're above participating in war games you know we're more civilized than that the second he gets on the bridge he's like bring it on captain picard yeah like i'd I'd, I'd certainly be the same it's that kind of like i was was watching it this time and i was thinking like if i was in that position it almost reminds me of when you maybe go on like on a stag do or something and someone suggests you know what we should do let's go paintballing and it's that kind of competitive side immediately kicks in and you're like oh the idea of like going against your friends and you know 
finding out who's the best one, who's got the strongest set of skills. And I thought it was quite an exciting. It kind of that's what it reminded me of. I think I'd be well up for uh, the war games. I like the paintball analogy. Like someone challenged me to a paintball game, even though I pretty much would suck at it. I would be like, you are going to get a paintball between the eyes, buddy. <laughs> Absolutely. What about yourself, Amy? What did you think of the war games angle? Did you think it was a, was an interesting choice? Yeah, I um, it, it really brings out the competition in everyone, you know, and uh, Picard got a little testy with... Um, what? Kolrami? Yes, Kolrami, when he kept underestimating... Uh, Riker and he's like you don't know and you know the weaker his position the more aggressive he's gonna get I mean he knows Riker and he knows not to underestimate him and so you see this and then Riker's you know (laughs) not when Wesley brings in that uh, uh, enabling him to do warp just for a little second his experiment you know it's like yeah, is that cheating or is that just bending the rules, you know? And that's that competition, you know, oh, that's improvisation. That's not cheating, you know? And so this competition is just feeding throughout the entire episode. Yeah, I'm afraid I don't understand the difference here. Like, it's okay for Worf to, like, hack their computer system and, you know, mess with a few screens and stuff. That's not cheating, but it's cheating for Wesley to come back and grab his antimatter. Right. <laughs> Some very interesting uh, set of rules there. Um, I think for me, I think what kind of makes this episode stand out, and I've always watched this and thought, like, obviously Shades of Grey has this reputation, and we've discussed it before, that it's potentially the worst episode of Star Trek ever, and that's the season finale, whereas I think peak performance, in a way, is the perfect season finale for season two. I mean, all the characters, apart from Troy, really get a chance to shine here, and it's such a good ensemble piece. It really seems like a great way to wrap up the year. And I always thought if the two were swapped around, no one would be given Shades of Grey any beef really whatsoever. It'd just be this odd episode that was there in season two as opposed to it's the big season finale, like peak performances. Like, yeah, it has everything you'd kind of want from a end of season finale. Even Counselor Troy gets her moment in the spotlight, though. She does get to remind Data that everyone will be true to their human nature when it comes down to brass tacks, right? Riker can't help but be who he is, no matter what situation you put him in. Did I imagine? I thought Troy wasn't in this episode. Oh, so No, she, she was talking with Data on uh, oh, yeah. in 10-4. I, I watched Our, that uh, in five hours ago. I can't believe I, I blanked that. I, I was watching it and thinking, oh, Troy's not in this episode. Oh, my word. Well, I think I definitely need to get I mean, she only gets a couple of lines, but... <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's because she's not really on the bridge during the war game uh, exercise. Well, well, there were Ferengi. There was nothing to sense, right? So <laughs> Exactly, yeah. Um, like, yeah, I, I've always thought that had a really strong end of season finale, and I think it's definitely showcases the Next Generation crew at their, their best. Like, Picard's batting um, for his crew. Data's got this existential crisis. Worf is being his warrior self. Um, Wesley Crusher is using his brains. Pulaski, I think, never been better by this stage. You know, she's really kind of evolved to be an exciting character and her relationship with Data feels really dynamic. You know, everyone seems to be kind of punching on all cylinders. It seems like, oh man, this is the show starting to really peak at its its best now. And it's always fun to bring an aggregating factor, an external person who can come in and just be the foil for all the characters. And Kolrami does a great job of that. 
that. He's just so annoying. He's dripping with it. Yes. And, and Captain Picard is great in this. He has this quiet confidence of an experienced captain. While Riker's sort of having this bravado moment where he's in command of his tiny little ship that's taking on the Enterprise, Captain Picard just sits back and says, well done, number one, but wait till you see what's coming. Like, so Amy, like when you were watching this episode, like with with the crew of the Enterprise, like what were your thoughts on kind of the, the, the crisis that some of them were going through or some of the issues? What did you think of um, kind of Data having a bit of a crisis? And, and obviously you're a huge Pulaski fan. Do you think this episode really showcased that she should have been kept on perhaps into the third season, that she really was kind of, you know, the character we all hoped she would be by this stage? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when she's um, on the bridge with Data and Kalrami and he's and Kalrami's talks to Data and says, well, I int- I'm intrigued by your challenge to play Stratagema. And Data's like, well, I didn't do that. And, you know, and then you can just see Pulaski. She mouths the word, please, you know, just do the challenge. And he's like, OK, I will. And so their interplay is just so. So I like seeing that and I like um, also that interplay where he's recognizes or he realizes that he made this mistake and then that just sends him in a tailspin, you know, and how and it was interesting because both Troy and Pulaski went to Data's quarters to give him this little pep talk and he was not having it you know and I thought that was so weird and the only person to get him out of his little funk was Picard and of course I love um, Picard's quote it is possible to make no mistakes and still lose you know that's a a great life lesson I think Pulaski really really shines in this episode in fact I think this episode really makes her out to be the most human of all the characters in TNG really of, of the main characters even though she was only there for one season She's the one who can say, this guy, Kolrami, is a pain in the neck and needs to be brought down a peg. And Data, you're the guy to do it. And Data, get your act together and stop sulking like Achilles in your tent and show up to work. <laughs> yeah, like, I, she definitely comes across as like, you're very human that way. Like, you've got kind of Riker's competitiveness as well, that he's got this big war games, he's going to win and he's going to have a lot of fun. And kind of Pulaski's more of that kind of competitiveness of like, she just wants to see people go out there and they, them competing and kind of, paying off against each other and I really like that aspect of it as well that there's competition going on kind of throughout the ship and it's nice in this sort of Gene Roddenberry vision that oh everyone kind of gets along there's no competition or drama like competitiveness is like primarily one of the most biggest drivers of uh, drama ever and this episode is just dripping with it with every character and I think that Pulaski you know she's older and experienced like Captain Picard right this isn't her first rodeo and so and Picard is kind of this friendly I mean even though he's he's a captain and he's kind of overseeing everything he's kind of a father figure right he's got a bunch of younger officers that he oversees and Pulaski isn't one of them he's more in Captain Picard's generation so she can sit back and say sorry captain burdens of command <laughs> kind of laugh at him for having to go handhold an android and she definitely definitely is nailing that kind of father figure role especially towards Riker the, the amount of times that he's banging up Riker to kill Rami throughout this episode like he's like the finest officer which I've ever served and as soon as like Riker kind of lays a glove on the Enterprise it's not just that oh damn he's got the better of us here it's like ah we knew he was the best and it's yeah I really like that side that it's you know it almost feels like you know, Picard is just complete total confidence and um, yeah I, I, that's what exactly when you want to see from your kind of captain and your leader is that someone that truly does inspire 
So, like, with uh, this episode as well, it kind of has this sort of the big turn that we've got these kind of two main points. We've got the Kilrami uh, storyline going on with Data. We've got this War Games. And then in the kind of the last act, it's all building up and out of nowhere, the Ferengi come. And that can be a bit jarring, I think, for some people. How did you find the twist of the Ferengi kind of coming in to uh, change the day? And what did you think of that whole kind of last act? You know, I actually kind of got a laugh out of it because I haven't watched it in a while and I had kind of forgotten what it was like to have scary warlike Ferengi. What about you, Amy? Did you enjoy seeing the Ferengi appear on the screen or was it ever grown for you? Um, yeah, a little bit of a groan. They did. I appreciated that when they put them on the view screen, it wasn't this massive head filling the entire screen, you know, and they sort of took that out. And, uh, you know, and you can see they really did want the Ferengi to be this you know, enemy against Federation and they, it just doesn't work. It just wasn't working. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm glad they dropped it, you know, later on in the seasons, but you can see their last ditch effort. And it, I mean, I understand why it's there and it just, I liked it for the purpose that it got the two ships, the Hathaway and the Enterprise working together, you know, which I like that twist in the episode. Um, And it could have been any. It didn't have to be Ferengi, just any ship. Now, obviously, the uh, they talk about um, when the Ferengi are there, they come up with this very convoluted plan to escape the foils of the Ferengi and obviously they use a bit of maths Amy what did you think of their plan to escape the clutches of the Ferengi (laughs) well I thought it was perfect and um Because they were, you know, trying to keep it a secret because they were going to use this, you know, warp thing against the Enterprise. And so when they're working together and you don't really hear exactly the plan and you just know that if they are off by really a millisecond, I, okay, don't get me started with that. That's a little annoying. Um, But, um, you know, then they will look like that they blew up the ship, which I think why would they really think that that work? I mean, if you blow up a major ship, wouldn't there be debris? I mean, wouldn't anyone know? Oh, the ship didn't just disintegrate into nothing. Yeah, it doesn't really add up. Like, I guess all they have to do is confuse them for a few seconds, really, so the Hathaway can kind of get away. But on the other hand, it's like two seconds of warp. Where is that going to get you? The next planet over? They're not going to be hard to find. I don't understand how that's really going to solve the problem. But Worf has a great one-liner there. He says, this will be very unfortunate. We will be dead. Yes. I think it's it's definitely a a sort of a bizarre twist that I think like instead of kind of them kind of maybe just doing something a bit more practical they have this kind of convoluted idea that they're going to have a quick warp thing here and there and like I think it kind of sort of has a bit of an issue there because you don't really buy into this threat like what exactly are the Ferengi going to do and why can they not just turn around and just say we're just having a war game exercise as opposed to having this really bizarre because I still don't kind of necessarily understand what they're um trying to say like oh we why were these two federation ships fighting each other and oh this must be worth value it's like no we were just having a war game exercise it wasn't like anything more than that and then they've gone to this really convoluted plot to that could potentially kill 
40 crew members just to get out of the situation it seems like maybe the truth would be the easiest option to go to first and did i miss something are the transporters down like why couldn't they just beam the crew back did i did yes, i miss a plot the point Ferengi got a few lucky shots oh, in okay. there and you know there wasn't anything they could do with the uh, the transporters on the shuttle or repairing the transporters in time no those Ferengi's always got that lucky shot that everyone seems to get and took down the transporters i mean i guess the Ferengi aren't going to believe them if they said you know go ahead and scan the ship um you know we're just doing a war games it's an old bus old busted rep, rep. It's an old busted rest bucket of a ship. Go ahead and scan it. And the Frankie will be like, oh, no, 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 no. You're still hiding something. We don't believe you. It's it's no, no matter what story they tell the Frankie, you're not going to believe them. And then at the end, they're like, oh, who knew you could be so cold and heartless? And then they just just warp off. And it's like, well, it's a good thing they didn't do like a scan around the other side of the planet or within one second away of a warp burst or else it would have just like fallen apart again. Exactly. Exactly. So what did you guys make of Kilrami and his uh, his game of stratagema? Was that something that you enjoyed? Was that a plot line you thought was quite interesting? Or would you do you even know what stratagema really is? I do really love this plot point. It's making me smile right now because I grew up in the early 80s playing video games and Atari. And here we get to see video games, which is essentially like a Nintendo game or an Atari 2600 game, turned into like this, this massive cultural thing where you can be a grandmaster of it. It's like if I said to you today, I'm the grandmaster at Space Invaders. Whoa, you know, and I get all, all this respect for it. That would be amazing. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> I suppose I I'm I think still, that's <laughs> I suppose I'm still bragging about being a, a grandmaster at Sonic. The Hedgehog I, I, I do this. Like, like we, we recently, Amy, you were there. We recently went to Las Vegas and there's a pinball museum and they've got a, a, a Super Mario Brothers arcade game there. And I was looking around waiting to find someone I could challenge. Like, let's throw it down right now. Put the quarters on the machine. I will school you in Super Mario Brothers. So I do kind of relate to call Rami a little bit. Well, and it's surprising that there's one game that everyone would know. I mean, I guess we have that with chess, right? Because you this can is be like a, chess, a grandmaster at chess and it's this major strategy strategy game. I mean, so outside of chess, do we have anything that's that well known through the entire Federation or, you know, through the entire world that's <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of strategy games that, I don't know. I just thought it was weird that everyone knew Stratagemma, but I like you, you the plot You don't line. hear a lot of Grandmaster Sudoku players. Right? <laughs> I think with, with um, yeah, apart from probably like chess, like there seems to be very few kind of earthbound games. Like it's probably, they're probably banned Monopoly because it was tearing like crew apart. Like there they are on this like five year mission and then like they're competing over who owns the, uh, the ironworks and the waterworks. And it's just like, <laughs> it's a game that tears families apart here in the UK. I'm sure it was tearing starships apart in deep space. I was thinking, I mean, Scrabble has a championship. Are there are Scrabble championships, right? That's a thing. Hmm. I think I don't know. Well, I can imagine that more probably for like the spaceship nerds. I can't imagine they're probably they're loving that. Whereas probably people like Warfare, they they've got they've got their competitiveness on the holodeck. Yeah, the, um, the the Dungeons and Dragons grandmasters don't get their day in the in the spotlight. Oh dear! Yeah, exactly. We we need to get on. We need to find like a start work on a game, and um, get it spread throughout the universe. We really need to. Uh, that's got to be our goal from now yes, on. Yes, I agree. <laughs> So, um, I like yeah, the challenge. I, feel, I think a few of us Trek FM hosts should get together and we should come up with our own video game. Like we could, we could take over the competitive video game market world. We could, we could come up, yeah, we'll come up with a game. We'll declare a grandmaster. One of us can, can be the first grandmaster honorarily. 
Yes, and then of course. the person to be beat. What do you think? I think we've got a plan. We've got to do it. Like, we'll, just, we'll throw this one night to currently Bale Conference. I'm sure they'll come up with some sort of amazing uh, video game, board game that will kind of last to the 25th century and beyond, you know. I'd love to be seeing maybe like Frogger or something like that, like where they're navigating a starship across like Dominion War or something like that. That That's probably a modern one that will kind of catch on. But what can we do now? That's, that's definitely going to be getting going through my mind over the weekend. Not to drop a blatant Voyager reference, since this is Earl Grey, but on Voyager, they have Kata Scott championships. You just off camera. Yeah, there you go. See, like that was a game I never kind of understood as well. Like, obviously, it just always just looked like people just like kind of angling uh, like little matchsticks. Like what? what you, you're the Voyager expert here. Tell us like what that was kind of all about. I have no idea. We actually recently discussed this on an episode of To The Journey, but we came up empty handed. We know there are some red and orange and green pieces, but that's about all we know. But speaking of stratagema, though, I do love this idea that you take what's essentially like a video game, you know, like a flat screen and you've made it, you know, in three dimensions rotating around. Look, it's really complicated. You can't get a great sense of what you're trying to do in this game. But I love the futuristic take on a video game here. And the timing really has something to do with it, too, because like you're moving your fingers really fast. So you can't, you know, so it's difficult in that respect because the timing of it all and you have to move fast. But then also, yeah, it's rotating. So I sort of feel like Korami would make a great massage therapist oh. <laughs> love it <laughs> and why is that then well, his fingers just have that magic touch yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I suppose he always kind of looks like he's such an interesting creature because he looks like he's almost got gills on his face as well and data actually moonlights is one of those massage beds that they used to have in vegas you know you put the quarter in you get the magic fingers yeah <laughs> that that sounds quite uh, yeah oh, yeah. Uh, yeah right next to his off switch he's got a slot for a quarter yeah. I suppose that's probably like Dr. Crush knows the secret uh, coin slot to put into (laughs) data when he gets there So is there like any other points that you guys want to pick up on on uh, peak performance? I'm starting to think, yes. I struggle what to think. Oh, Amy? Yes, Shoot. I um, was actually really glad, um, Zach, that you chose this episode because um, I remember listening, I think it was your third, well, and I told you this in Vegas too, like when I really fell in love with your show was when you guys were talking about game theory. So I was really happy, um, Zach, when you uh, wanted to do peak performance because uh, you did a great episode on Metatrex talking about game theory, and that was uh, episode 18. Yeah, it was Metatrex episode 18 called The Poker Game of Life. Yes, and so this uh, peak performance has... Uh, some great components of game theory. And uh, so I wanted to have a discussion with you on game theory. Um, So I teach this in my math class, and there's the four four components of game theory, and two of them get really mentioned uh, directly in the episode. Um, So the four components... You need to um, know the players. You need to know the rules. Um, you need to know the consequences. And then you need to play to win. And so with that, like, 
we definitely know the players, right? And we have uh, Riker choosing his uh, team, Worf, Wesley, Jordy, and then some other people we don't know. And so then we have the leftovers staying with Picard. So we have the players clearly defined. Um, and when they're about ready to start, uh, Karami is like, okay, so everyone understands the rules. So he's bringing that component in. And, um, and then when Data actually... Well, he doesn't really win the stratagema, but he changes his preference or his uh, he changes the way that he's thinking because now he's not playing to win. And so that throws game theory just right out the window. It's so awesome. I think this is a brilliant metaphor for life in general and maybe for business by extension. If you're always striving to win, playing to win, playing to playing, playing to win, eventually you're going to lose. You could make bad decisions. You could be wasteful. You could end up unhappy, whatever. And that's a different goal than playing to be sustainable. Like data is playing to be sustainable. He wants to stay in the game as long as possible. And he's not taking clear advantages to in order to try to win. And I think that's a good metaphor for life when I've tried to strive and strive and strive. Sometimes I end up really unhappy and stressed out when I strive to be sustainable and just have a good day every day. I'm doing much better in life. I think it's a great metaphor for life in general. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so and Data's like when everyone's congratulating him, you won. He's like, no, it was a stalemate. And, you know, so sometimes you have to look at that and it's like, well, yeah, what is the purpose and why am I playing the game? So it's a great game theory. Yeah. I busted him up. <laughs> that is so 80s, isn't it, as well? When it's just like, I, we, I busted him up. And then everyone does like that fake cheer. And then like you can almost just imagine it, the screen pausing there. And then the credits going it's like a, It's a very them. original series ending. Like, you know, the camera kind of pans back and everyone's having a laugh on the bridge. You know, it's yeah, very, get te- your very uh, original series. I mean. <laughs> like we, someone should do that. Like just take this little uh, clip, uh, this little video, and then just like put uh, the laugh track over it. Like you know, people do that. They are they strip the laugh track or put a laugh track on. I want to hear a laugh track of uh, peak performance uh, put in place there. I busted him up. <gasps> oh, the crowd goes wild, and yeah, oh, yeah. That lovable Android Data. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, you know, one of my favorite aspects of this show is Worf. Worf gets some spectacular one-liners that really define his character in this. I wrote a few of them down. We've got just finished when he, when he shoves the model. And why does Worf like building, building model boats all of a sudden? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so bizarre. Weird. It is bizarre, but I love that he's concentrating on it. it. It's supposed to show a little nuance and complexity to his character that we don't really see on screen very much, of course. And he, you know, shoves it off the desk into the trash can, just finished. And I like when Riker says, you know, how are we going to win then? He says, guile. (laughs) And I I have a little bit of wharf in me too. Like, you know, if I had the disadvantage, I would be like, okay, I'm going to find the angle come hell or high water. I'm going to use my guile. Watch me. Um, What else does he say? He says, oh yeah. When when Kalrami, when they're on the bridge at the beginning of the show and they're introducing the Kalrami as a character and they're talking about the Zach Doran and how their reputation as strategists and wharf says they've never been challenged. Their reputation means nothing. Yeah, I wrote that quote down, too. I love that. And you can see it just pure wharf of honor and fighting. And and I agree. Does your reputation mean anything without action? And how did the reputation of Karami's 
race get so good if there's no action? I'm like that. I think I think, you know, if someone says, you know, if, if I, someone's talking up someone's reputation, someone's really well known in the field or they've got all these skills, they've done all these great things. It's like, whatever, that's all talk. Let's see what they can do. Exactly. I totally get that point. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see them if, again, if like in the Dominion War, if we had like kind of a uh, Korami uh, popping up on Deep Space Nine. The, the, the Zachdorn uh, faction. Sort of, yeah, exactly. Just like giving a little expert advice that we obviously got the genetically enhanced individuals came on. I'd love to see Korami coming, like kicking around the Defiant. I can't imagine it. You, ben Sisko would have much patience for him. Do you think the Zachdorn would have sided with the Federation and the rest of the Alpha Quadrant contingent or would they have sided with the Dominion? Mm. But then I suppose on that kind of side what, as well. Speaking of probably, game theory, like what's the safest bet? Yeah, but I suppose um, from their side of view, they're probably doing like kind of the strategy that kind of the genetically enhanced people went on. Oh yeah, look at this, like the odds of Federation surviving. So they're probably, I bet they signed a non-aggression pact as uh, all the <laughs> other ones did. Well, the, it seems to me that the Zakdorn are just strict utilitarians. Like they are totally willing to sacrifice 40 people to save a thousand. Right. Yeah, like that when he's like, um, yeah, oh, as soon as like uh, the Frankie come along, 40 people is an acceptable loss of life. He's like, geez, we have, I thought for like a strategy, my guy or, you know, all this strategy, they'd be thinking, right, um, surely we could come up with a quick plan here. And this is like their moment to shine of like to prove um, uh, prove that this is like they're these brilliant strategy men opposed to, yeah, just get rid of them. That's that's the yeah, one well, to go to. Well, it's such a panic. Well, that's their overly simplistic strategy you know, strategizing that the Zachdorns seem to do, right? They just, it's a numbers game to them. Same thing with playing Stratagema. What's the, where's the advantage? 1,000 versus 40. It's just a numbers game. And the humans have to take the human perspective. Like it's more complicated than that. We do care about our 40 people and we're going to find another solution. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely... So, like, kind of looking at it from, and from a modern kind of perspective, like, do you think this is, like you were saying, season two is... You don't consider it a very good uh, season, whereas Amy is a bit of a Vivaldi and is a person for all seasons. Uh, boom, boom, shh. Um, do you think that... Um, this episode like you know does it stand the test of time or would it make you reevaluate season two zachary well i it's not that i don't like season two it's just not my favorite season there are some great episodes in season two but um so i guess i and i have no deep opinion about one season versus another but i do think this this episode does stand the test of time because these are universal human themes right we do have competition we do need to decide what we prioritize do we prioritize a thousand people or 40 we need to decide you know am i going to play to win in life or am i going to play to be sustainable and i think those are just universal themes um so the episode for me is as relevant now except for maybe the 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 Atari 2600 element of it. That doesn't hold up as well. Absolutely. And Amy, like, obviously you're a huge fan of season two. Like, where does this kind of rank on the season two scale for you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Definitely uh, at the top, because as Zach said, all of these themes that's coming through and the character development, of course, by the end of season two, that launches into season three that everyone seems to love so much. Like you get that the familiarity with the crew and that they have with each other and they know each other. And so it really just is a great episode for, uh, yeah, those themes that we see and for the uh, relationships that we see on the bridge um, and how they know and trust each other. It's, yeah, definitely up there. It's, it's kind of like podcasting, Amy, because I know what you're going to say and you know that I know that you know what you're going to say. And I know that you know that I know that you know what you're going to say. And so we have our little one-upmanship 
game theory approach to podcasting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely, and we all know that Amy is a huge fan of you uh, and Metatrex. Uh, she always manages to get a plug in for you guys there on every Earl Grey episode. So I can just tell her she's a bit of a fan. That's she's maybe been a bit quiet today, but I think she's just kind of just dreamily thinking about Metatrex. Well, and- I, I love that I get a chance to talk about something other than philosophy, even though we talked about. I can't help but bring bring in a little philosophy. We talked about utilitarianism a little bit, but you know, I like to get just get a chance to hang out and geek out and talk about Star Trek. And TNG was like I said, it was my first Star Trek love really so it's fun to just geek out and talk about that okay so here's a last question for you before we start to wrap up Zachary well, that, like, you, you guys you are fast at podcasting we're only 37 about, minutes in pardon? you guys are fast oh, so. at podcasting we're only 37 minutes in oh yeah well here's a question for you then Zachary you, you know you don't want to talk about philosophy that does fair what do you think of like the shooting in this episode like like do you think like with this episode like they're having war games but we next to see no physical weapons firing do you think this episode creates a lot of drama by not having kind of going to the like the action tropes that I was thinking of this when I was watching the episode that yeah we see the Hathaway like get a few shots in and the Enterprise fire off a torpedo at the Hathaway that's that's all we get to see of this whole action war game and yet it was more exciting more enjoyable more dramatic than the kind of the 45 minute long space battle in um, Star Trek Nemesis what was your thoughts on the kind of the shooting and action side then kind of let's get you to your base element yeah I think it's remarkably effective because even though we don't see any shots fired we do have a combat situation we have ships facing each other and whatnot and that's inherently kind of dramatic in this in this combat sense but real life is like that it's always a little adversarial me versus uh, a company me versus the government me versus you know people I'm competing with and that's inherently dramatic you don't need to shoot them up to have drama and this it's great that they, they they use a combat situation but without all the typical combat element tropes to create that drama I think it works remarkably well what about yourself Amy you're a huge nemesis fan so I pose this to you what is the more exciting and dramatic and interesting space battle this one or the uh, the nebula one in a uh, nemesis <laughs> Ah, you just had to bring that up. No, I think both are very good. And there's my uh, politically correct answer Um, because they are serving different purposes. And so here in peak performance, like, you know, you have this simulation. And so in parallel, like it's they're simulating this battle and so you've got the ships and so you're not going to see as much you know weaponry and stuff cuz it's just a simulation and um I do like uh when the Ferengi come in and but and then they warp out what that's a great trail that they leave I love Yo, that was part it? yeah and it looks very good in the HD yeah I so, think that, speaking of Nemesis, I think there's a, a it's just a, a moment, but there are two parallel moments in Nemesis and in this episode that really kind of work for me involving Captain Picard. And the one, the first one I already mentioned, when Riker is kind of one upping them and has pulled a fast one with with the tricks on the view screen, view screen, and Picard kind of sits back and says, you know, prepare the ship to prepare the beams for photon mode, and he just sits back in his chair, casual, like he's not really worried about. It. He's the experienced captain. And same thing in Nemesis, you know, uh, Picard has a moment where he says. He thinks he knows what I'm going to do. I've got him. And that's Picard being Picard at his finest. Absolutely. Yes. 
Yeah, like I think this is definitely a great advert for Picard that we think of him in that first kind of encounter at Farpoint and he's so cold to Riker for a little bit. And now kind of two seasons on, we've had this like growth of character where he truly is like this kind of really you know, really nice captain, kind of inspiring and looking out for people and not sort of in that kind of detached stage. And I think that kind of reflected probably how Patrick Stewart felt on stage and kind of Picard feeling comfortable in his own skin at this stage. One other thing I'd like to get your guys' opinion on about this episode, what do you think of Data's crisis of confidence sulking like Achilles in his tent? I think that's amazingly powerful. I have moments like this personally where I have, I, I alternate between Riker and Data, you know, sort of radical overconfidence and then sulking in my tent when things don't live up to my own expectations. So I really, this episode speaks to me personally because I do have those kinds of extremes to my personality. What do you, what do you think of Data and his crisis? Yeah, like, I mean, I wouldn't be a kind of a guy if I wasn't saying that I didn't, I don't get urges like that as well. Um, you know, I like to think I'm a, a relatively competitive guy. Like we play like five aside football kind of every couple of weeks and I'm one of those people that's keeping the score. And yeah, like I always like that, you know, I, I don't may not score a lot of the goals, but you know, I always like that feeling of being on the winning team and kind of coming out on top and, you know, like playing the long game and making sure I'm coming out on top. These sorts of things I, you know, I can definitely relate to and sometimes when you know you think like I'm in the middle I can almost relate to an extent just now that I'm in the middle of like looking to buy a house and it's been so frustrating it's such a competitive house market here in Edinburgh and there was one day I thought here I am I'm going to be the one that's coming out on top I'm going to be celebrating getting a flat today I thought I've got to put out a good bed I thought everything the wind is in my sails here and then I get a call no, you came second. Someone trumped you by like 10,000 more. And I remember it was that feeling of thinking, oh, I could have won that one. And I'm not afraid to say I got a bit misty-eyed. I was sitting at my desk at work just like, and I'm in an open plan office and I'm like, make sure no one's seen that you're looking like you're maybe about to cry and make sure that no one's seen you upset. And then I went up to, upstairs to the bathroom and I just sulked in the bathroom for 10, 15 minutes until I didn't look like I had red eyes anymore. Oh, you're going to make thought, us cry just, here. Yeah, exactly. Just thought, I'll just casually just go back into the office. And I was just like, and it took my uh, my girlfriend to come in and say, get a grip. Just like, you know, well, you've missed out on a flat. You know what? There's plenty more and you'll have to get used to this feeling. And, you know, that's sometimes something that Dan needs to get used to. He needed to get used to that rejection and, you know, sometimes just you know he can you can do everything right you can put in the best possible bed and you know do your best effort but there's sometimes always someone better and that's just the way it goes and for me the interesting nuance about data here is that he's overthinking everything he's overthinking his strategy strategy damn it he's overthinking his strategy in the game he's overthinking the situation with Riker and he's really stuck because he's in his own headspace you know and one of the interesting I think lessons of this of this episode is Sometimes overthinking is a bad thing. You need to shoot first and think about it later. <laughs> what about yourself, Amy? What did you think of Data's uh, sulking away? What did you think Troy gave him some good advice? Would you, or would you be Troy in that position or have you been Data in that position? Well, definitely Troy does her best, but Data just shuts her down every time, you know, when she's like, well, when you're feeling this, well, counselor, I have no feelings. Well, <laughs> when you're doing this, well, counselor, I don't, you know, and so he was refusing to take any type of counsel or, you know, d trying to change his thinking. He was definitely stuck in this, this pattern of thinking. And, you know, like I mentioned before, like Pulaski came in and tried to shake him out of it. And it wasn't until Picard came in and was like, all right, yeah, just like your girlfriend, just get over it. I need you on the bridge. Let's go, you know? And um, 
So sometimes it takes multiple people, which is why I think it's good to have, you know, a lot of good friends around you. Cause sometimes it, it just the strangest things, like they're saying Troy Pulaski and Picard, they're saying the same thing. Um, but it just depends on which one is going to stick, you know, and which one yeah, yeah. do we actually end up listening to, you know? Oh, well, yeah, my friend, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, I, I listen to Y this time. Well, this time I'm listening to X, you know, so it just depends. And so it's really good to have, uh, m- different people in your life to give you those different perspectives. I am totally like this. If something is wrong, if something, things aren't going well, if I haven't done well in some way, I will brood and I will ruminate and I will obsess over it and overthink it. And sometimes it just takes a friend coming in and going, you're being ridiculous. You're overthinking it. Let's go to the beach. Absolutely. You know, go, let's go to holodeck too. And let's, go to, a, let's go to the holodeck. A, a deer stalker hat and just get on. Yeah. Actually, speaking of sports, Lee, you said you were, you were a sports fanatic. I am actually the grandmaster velocity champion over onto the journey. So if you want to come and spar <laughs> on the holodeck a little bit, we could we could work something out. Absolutely. Like, yeah, I'm looking forward to like, hopefully in uh, Star Trek Discovery, we've seen fencing, we've seen velocity, we've seen all these different sports. I just want to see someone that's like, I want a good old football and I'm talking British football here. None of this American well, okay, soccer well, nonsense. Very broadly speaking, why is this? There's even though TNG is kind of framed around Gene Roddenberry's utopian vision of the future, there's this ongoing competitive element throughout all the sports we do see inside Star Trek, TNG in particular. I suppose sports is always just that kind of, it's a primal thing, isn't it? That you know when you, I, I don't know about you but like when I, I go to like football games for example you know you, things are coming out of your mouth you know like it's always that I think it's they've always classed it in Britain as like football for example it's like it's the working class game it's that way that you've you know you've worked hard all week you've slogged away and then on a weekend you can just hurl abuse at your another team your own team you can just cheer celebrate that you're kind of you're aiming towards that and I think perhaps with kind of the next generation and the Star Trek crews you know a lot of what they're doing is just that work and work and work and they are very kind of you know asexual kind of normal folk just very plain into the job a lot of the time and then when it comes to say like holodecks and sports and kind of romance that's where they get to start to flourish and they're they can't almost always be their their best selves on a starship they've got to be kind of following all of these society norms because you know at the end of the day you you, these are the people you've got to work with and live with and it's it really is office living in a way but for a very extended period of time and in your pajamas see Lee, now i kind of want to hear your best football yell can you give us an example a, a, a sample <laughs> it like, would all depend like I, I've Klingon had, style. I know, um here we go come on you spurs or something like that but uh, it all depends it sometimes it can be uh you know a bit more aggressive than that depending on the uh what the team's doing so uh, I might have to record myself watching it one day I'll, I'll, I'll make that a patron special listen to Lee for 90 minutes watching Spurs v uh, Aston Villa Love we, it. we do kind of get a sports scene when Data's playing Karami at the end they're all cheering him on come on Data come on Data go and Jordy's just there like come on Data you've got him you've got him you, okay Data you got him and it's like you just hear Jordy just like you can't just let one second go by without saying you can do it you've got it you've got it and then he fails like Jordy I hope like he probably had like most he had all this money probably in the pool and he was like, come on, Dave, you can do it. Oh, no. Well, I think there's um, a lot of, well, not free time, but, you know, it's this utopia society. So you are going to see, oh, well, I think I'm going to get really good at this game and I have lots of time and I get to do what I want because I don't have to work. I don't have to, you know, worry about taking 
you know, getting money and to buying things, you know, I have this replicator here. So you've got people with free time and doing what they want to do. So definitely I would think that you've got people who want to be the best soccer player or football player or, uh, all the other Greasy games. squares players. Yeah, exactly. Well, Councilor Troy makes a great point, which is that it's important for humans to have an outsider st- set the standards by which they're judged. And then data makes an interesting counterpoint to avoid deceiving themselves. Yes. Yeah, and it's very true. Very true. Like, you know, it's, e- it's easy to think you're the best person in a small group of people. But then when someone else comes out and you're like, oh, he's doing it much better it, than me. It's too easy like, to be oh, a big no. fish in a little pond. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, right. most definitely. Most definitely. So has anyone got any other thoughts they want to say uh, on uh, peak performance? Just so, that, oh, oh, go good. ahead. Just, just that Worf has to complete my list of one-liners, my other favorite, maybe my most favorite Worf one-liner ever, I would be irritated. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's so good. What about yourself, Amy? What have you got any final thoughts or anything you'd like to discuss? Well, I was just wondering if anyone else saw this. <laughs> okay, have you seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Yes, I've seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Now, this is a point that you need to be conscious of here, Amy. The original one with Gene Wilder is called Willy Wonka and then the Chocolate Factory. Okay, that's the one I'm referring to. I've seen that one. I've not seen the new one. Yes. Though the book is called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. They made that movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory for some bizarre reason. Um, It was to sell candy, right? Weren't they launching the Willy Wonka candy brand at that time? Most definitely. And they launched it again uh, in the later years as well. But yes, that movie was one of my favorites and was a staple of TV here in Britain for many a year so fire away me okay so then i'm sure since you uh, enjoyed that movie so much when <laughs> you have jordy and uh wesley in the dilithium chamber look and they have that uh view of the camera <laughs> oh, yeah. through your mind oompa loompa dippity doo are, are you worried was about that we- not going through Wait, your are brain you, are you worried about wesley getting sucked into the tube like augustus glue <laughs> through, the, through the chocolate <laughs> Wait, tube Wait, stop i mean that <laughs> view was just right from willy wonka did you not uh, see that or am i the only one do you know what I'm talking about? Zachary? I, oh, I know I, what you're talking okay. about. I admit uh, I did not make the connection. Oh, my no, gosh. I, I never made that connection in a trillion years. And that song was just going through my head. I'm like, look at this. This is totally Willy Wonka. Okay, well, I'm the only one. There's something about, about Gene Wilder's character in, in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, though. He does have this kind of slightly superior, not smugness, that's not quite the right term, but almost whimsical, you know, I'm, I've am i got this all figured out. Look at this mag- magical thing I built. And Riker's like that a little bit. Data's like that when he beats, when he beats Kalrami. Yes. And then they all went, and then after they, after they busted him up, they all slept together in the same bed. Yeah, but he, even, even Wesley, though, when he, when, he's walk, when he goes back to the Enterprise and he's being, a, you know, oh, damn, uh, trying to recount the story here. When Wesley goes back to the Enterprise and the replacement um, tactical officer is kind of babysitting and hand-holding him through getting his experiment and he's walking away and he's got this little, almost like, you know, just 
like he like he stole a candy bar out of Willy Wonka. He's got this yeah. grin on his face. He walks away like, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is an NA old security officer. That's Agent Pierce, uh, Agent Aaron Pierce from 24, the president's bodyguard and security. Like that's just, oh. that's, yeah, that's Glenn Morshower who appears in quite a few episodes of uh, Star Trek. And he, he does, yeah. Yeah, um, he was a hell of a character in 24. And I remembered when going back to watch this and there he is like 10, uh, 10, 12 years earlier, much thinner, <laughs> much looking more broad. And then in 24, he's a bit more, bit more beefy, I would say. Uh, so he's definitely had a bit too many uh, buns while working for security. I would say Wesley can give Worf a run for his money in terms of guile. Mm. Yes, most definitely. And Wesley is one of the things. Like, it's not him saving the day either. So that's always a, a, a nice thing. That this whole idea that, oh, Wesley was always saving the day. Yeah, in season one. In season two, very rarely, if I recall ever, that he did it. Or, you know, and this is an episode where he could have done it as well. But no, he just plays a small role in getting them a few seconds of warp driving. Yeah, that's the Wesley I remember, not this sort of fake Wesley that's kind of gets perpetrated about. So... Uh, Zachary, what are your final thoughts then on uh, peak performance? Yeah, I don't know if I have much to say other than what I've already said. I mean, it, it's really my favorite episode from season two, I think, of TNG in general. I think it speaks to some universal human themes about competition and human nature. Um, you know, I do like the video game element. I grew up in, you know, playing video games in the in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, the idea that video games will become something you could become grandmaster in is, is, is appealing. Um, incredible one-liners and character building in this episode. Like, like you said, I think it would be a great season finale. It's too bad it didn't get a chance to be remembered as a season finale because I think it certainly could have been. Um, and I think this, uh, sadly, I think it's an episode that people don't often remember. Like, oh yeah, that episode, that was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, go back and watch season two in TNG. It's a great episode. Amy must be so happy right now hearing those words. Go back and watch season two of, 20, uh, of uh, Star Trek. It's good. And it I will defend is. season one of TNG against anyone because there's amazing oh, stuff yeah. in season one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so wildly, it's so campy at camp and enjoyable. Like, I find it hard to dislike season one. It's, yeah, it's definitely not peak next generation, but it's highly enjoyable next generation. What about yourself, Amy? What are your final thoughts on this episode? Yeah, like I said, there's a lot to talk about, you know, with what makes a reputation and, you know, how do you face challenges and how um, com- how competitive you are. Uh, I'm not really a major competitive person, but to see the aspects and how each of uh, our main characters deal with uh, competition. It was very interesting, especially with uh, Data and Pulaski, that interplay. I like talking about and seeing the game theory elements and, you know, these strategies of war. Um, They just come through. And so there's a really, I think the writers did a good job in bringing all of these elements into a fun uh, storyline. I mean, I think it is. It's just really fun. We've got this war game. We've got the Ferengi. We've got the strategy game. Uh, it just is really well done and a great episode. And yourself, Lee? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a highly enjoyable episode. Like for me, it's always a memorable episode, especially of season two. And maybe that's just from being on a personal level that I, I had it on video and it was kind of, you know, if I wanted a Star Trek kick, this was one of the episodes I had to, to deal with. And I, I think it's just so enjoyable and, you know, it always brings a smile to my face. And I, I've probably watched it as and it's probably one of my most watched episodes of Star Trek ever. And that's just perhaps by default, but it's an enjoyable episode. I, I've watched it so many times and I still get a kick from watching it though bizarrely I forgot Troy was in it so uh, I'm going to get a spank on the the wrist for that one (laughs) Um, but yeah I I find it hard to pick any fault with this episode I think it's so enjoyable and it's great to see the kind of the Enterprise crew having fun and you know doing these war games and you know I I can't complain whatsoever about this episode it's it's definitely one of the highlights of season two and I'm going to say a highlight of the next generation in general Mm -hmm. it it occurred to me in the way of a final final thought it occurs to me that this is one of the best Commander Riker episodes ever because Commander Riker he's pretty mild-mannered he's very deferential to Captain Picard most of the time but the second he gets in the command seat he's a totally different person yeah exactly he's a, he's a swashbuckling captain i would think he comes across and i like that when kind of they, they highlight yeah like the reason that he inspires people is that kind of jovial attitude and kind of including people here and yeah there's definitely something to be said about how to inspire people around you and leadership and yeah i definitely think if i was to uh screen an episode at the the white house for example this would be an episode i think could uh could be quite useful and don't forget that you get the best commander Riker lean ever he's leaning a full 45 <laughs> degrees inside that captain's <laughs> exactly. chair exactly he's basically like he's on a psychiatrist couch that's for sure so talking about peak performance isn't the only thing we've been talking about on the network this week here's what's been happening on all our other shows previously on trek.fm standard orbit the inscription of this book is a quotation from david gerald which is something he said to me in an email <laughs> and uh, he didn't even remember saying it i got to i i met him recently and showed it to him and he was like oh wow that's a pretty good quote i didn't know i said that I'm like oh well, yeah you did <laughs> but he said the primary philosophy in star trek stripped of everything else was love one another i think jesus might have said something like that once too the orb it's always weird. I mean, say you're watching the original series and, you know, you find out that uh, Dr. McCoy is a real Merle Haggard fan. You <laughs> right. know that? It's and just, he might be, That's actually. really strange. <laughs> to the journey! It's his mirror universe. Oh, is he oh, good? really? Is a mirror universe on suitor? Is he, like, super benevolent and just goes around <laughs> giving money to people? He was a member of the Terran Rebellion. Giving out, giving out ice cream and kissing puppies. <laughs> Primitive culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. This episode was actually banned by the BBC for many years. And they always said, I don't know if this is true, not so much because of the kind of allegorical significance of the episode, but because of this uh, single line in it where Data says, he basically says, oh, well, you know, the IRA basically achieved what they wanted in 2024. 2024, yeah. You know, it's uh, (laughs) coming up. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcast on iPhone, iPad, 
or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's shows, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best places to join the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. We love interacting with our listeners there. So join the conversation. If you'd like to send us an email, we love those too. You can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Gray. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. If you'd like to help keep all the shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It's requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all that details at patreon.com slash trekfm. So Zachary, if people want to reach out to you or haven't checked out your amazing shows, do you want to tell people a little bit about them and where they can find them? Well, you can find me all around Trek FM these days. You can find me hosting Metatrex, our show on Star Trek and philosophy with my co-host over there, Mike Morrison. You can also find me on To The Journey, Trek FM's dedicated Voyager podcast, along with my co-host Kay Shaw and Suzanne Williamson, if you want to hear me talk about Voyager. You can always find me in the Babel Conference, Trek FM's listeners-only discussion group, if you'd like to talk about Star Trek with me there. And one of the best ways to interact with me is on Twitter. You can find me under the handle at Zachary Fruling. That's Zachary, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y, Fruling, F-R-U-H-L-I-N-G. And Amy, if one people want to find you, you know, obviously you'd be kind of outside the Metatrex Hotel fangirling. Uh, where else could people find you if uh, when you're not doing that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is uh, right here on the Babel Conference, uh, talking to people and making comments here and there. And what about yourself, Lee? Yeah, you can find me all over the place. You can find me on the Filibuster podcast talking about nerd and geek culture. You can find me here on the network um, talking um, on the Babel Conference as well. You can find me sometimes on the Glasgow's Green podcast. You can find me everywhere. Um, But if you wanted to reach out to me, the best place is on Twitter at Lee underscore Nostromo or at Star Trek VHS. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. I'm at your disposal for a rematch. You better have me back on Earl Grey, otherwise I would be irritated.